If the Sacramento Kings are going to become a true contender in the NBA, it's all hands on deck. Every player has a significant role to play. But when it comes to Kevin Herter's role, I think we might all be underestimating a little bit how important he is to that next big step for Sacramento. We'll discuss right here on Locked on Kings. You are Locked on Kings, your daily Sacramento Kings podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is that time. Time for another episode of Locked On Kings. Hello and welcome into Locked On Kings, your podcast hub for Sacramento Kings coverage all offseason long. My name is Matt George. I have the privilege of being your host here. I'm a Sacramento sports reporter and producer for ABC 10 News. We are all hoping that this season the Sacramento Kings can make another big step in the right direction. The Kings are hoping to open what Monty McNair is calling a championship window. And Kings head coach Mike Brown has been very open and honest about the fact that it is much more difficult for a team to go from good to great than it is to go from bad to good, which is what Sacramento did last season. I don't think there are, I, I should say, I think the, the vast majority of Sacramento Kings fandom, and maybe even many in the Kings organization, are not necessarily expecting the Kings to be an, a, a, a true contending team this season. I think they believe they're well on the way to that. I think their moves suggest in bringing guys back and extending to Montes Sabonis the fact that all five of their starters are under contract for at least the next three years. The belief is this team now can develop and become a true contender, but maybe they're still a step or two or three away from becoming that. But whether it's this season or in future seasons, if the Kings are going to become a contender, everybody has to step up in a different way. Top to bottom on this roster, especially with the primary guys, there are significant roles that need to be filled and things that need to happen for the Kings to become a true contending team. And I'm not just about uh, talking about a team that's capable of making a deep playoff run. I'm talking about a team that's expected to be in that NBA Finals or Western Conference Finals picture for at least a handful of years. A team that might not be unbeatable, might not be the greatest team that anybody has ever seen or that has ever been assembled, but a team that if they get to that stage can perform on that stage and it is reasonable to believe that that team is capable of being the best team in the NBA that season uh, and bringing home a, a, a title, bringing home a championship. So when it comes to the roles of like De'Aaron Fox or DeMontis Sabonis, or even like we've discussed, like Keegan Murray developing uh, into the the third leading score for the Kings and that second true go-to score to create their own shot. Like those roles are pretty clear. Those roles are pretty obvious. And you would think that Kevin Herter's role in all this, or maybe the, the more appropriate word is Kevin Herter's fit in all of this would be pretty obvious and pretty apparent. But over the course of the season, the first season that that Kevin had here in Sacramento, the success that he had early and the struggles that he had over the course of the year, how poorly he played um, during the NBA playoffs, to quite frankly put it lightly, I think all of that has led to many of us just kind of accepting who Kevin Herter is or just accepting that, 
oh sure he's he's a good fit for the Sacramento Kings he makes sense for uh, to for the Kings on their roster but maybe he's glossed over a little bit or maybe he's just not necessarily focused on as much as he should be uh when it comes to the significance that he has the impact that he can have in the Kings becoming a contender. I, I was thinking about this. I was having a conversation with um, with my friends, uh, Damian Barling and Kenny Carraway, D'Lo and KC, on their radio show this week. And we were talking about who is the third most important player on the Sacramento Kings. And this is up for debate. There are a lot of players that you could discuss there. Uh, I uh, Both Kenny and I feel like it's Malik Monk. And if you want to weigh in on that, I'm not going to talk about that on on this podcast if you want to discuss that in a future podcast we can um but i feel at this point it's malik monk and i think it's going to be keegan murray by um, the time next season is 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 said and done if you want to weigh in on that you can if you're watching on youtube uh hit me up on youtube at matt george sack uh, or rather excuse me hit me up in the comment section down below and then you can hit me up on twitter or x as it's called not screw it i'm calling it twitter uh at matt george sack you can hit me up there you can also email me matt george sports at gmail.com and by the way quick pause uh, audio listeners, this is not going to make any sense to you, but video watchers, you can see in my on today's show um, column there to the what, that way to my. I can't even point to it. Why can I not figure this out? This is why I would never be a weatherman um, over there. Uh, it says on today's show uh, that I'm going to talk about Oakland A's ownership being bad for all of sports. You might be a little confused about that. Uh, stick around to the end of the show. I have a a pretty big rant for you. Um, about Oakland A's ownership and um, and and why I think it's bad for all of professional sports and um, it, it's a random topic but it's coming so don't be alarmed and think that that's a typo no I'm actually talking about that but anyway um, we were discussing on D'Lo and KC about whether or not um, or, or like who the who's the third best player on the Sacramento Kings and and Kevin Kevin Herter is not mentioned Kevin Herter is not brought up even though technically. Kevin Herter was the third leading scorer on the Sacramento Kings last season, averaging 15.2 points per game for Sacramento. So no scoring doesn't always translate to being the best player. There's more to basketball than just scoring, but Kevin Herter wasn't really considered. And while I do agree that Kevin Herter is not the third best player on this team, there are nights where he will be. There are nights where he could be the second best player on the Kings. There's a lot of guys on this roster that can have nights where they're the second or third or fourth best player. I think pretty typically the, the, the best player on the Kings roster every single night is going to be either De'Aaron Fox or DeMontis Sabonis, but Kevin might have his nights. Keegan will certainly have his nights. Malik will have his nights. Uh, Harrison Barnes could have his nights. So um, that's what's good in, about the, the deep talent that's on this roster. But ultimately, I don't think many of us consider Kevin Herter to be a true top player on this Kings team. But don't let that undermine or, or, or cause you to not appreciate or recognize how crucial Kevin is to the success of the Sacramento Kings. He was essential to the success of the team last year, establishing one of the best offenses in NBA history. One of the major reasons why, of course, the Kings uh, scored like 120 points per game, 120.7 points per game, which led the league. Like Kevin Herter was essential to the success of the Kings last season, of course. And as this team continues to develop, the offense either stays the same or even gets a little bit better. The defense hopefully improves and the Kings truly try to establish themselves as true contenders. Kevin's role in that simply because of his presence 
cannot be understated. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit. And I have a lot of numbers uh, to go through here because I was just going through some stats and looking at some stats. And it's it's pretty crazy uh, how important Kevin has been uh, for the Kings. Let's talk about the two things that Kevin does that are irreplaceable for Sacramento. You can maybe find other players that could also do this, but these are two things that the Kings can simply not operate without. It's spacing and shooting. Specifically, he opens up the paint for De'Aaron Fox, for DeMontis Sabonis, and for Kings Cutters. It is essential for a team to have at least two shooters. And that's Kevin Herter and Keegan Murray, essentially, uh, in this offense, at least with that starting lineup. Those guys that can stand in the corners or stand on the wing, stand at the top of the key, draw defenders out, open up that painted area a little bit for guys like Fox to to thrive where of course he does in the lane with that mid-range jumper DeMontis Sabonis in the high post which the Kings run all their offense through him uh, off ball cutters and things like that like that is all made possible because the presence of Kevin Herter on the floor that's number one number two is Kevin naturally takes pressure off of the shoulders of Fox and Sabonis and the other key members of the Sacramento Kings. Him naturally being out there, him being a constant threat on the perimeter means that De'Aaron will either take advantage of defenders leaving him in order to try and help on, on Fox or help on Sabonis. Those guys can take advantage of that by having a trusted and consistent three-point shooter out there on the perimeter that will make opposing defenses pay when they leave him open from three-point range. And I have numbers to share with you in a second to reflect that. Or that defender will choose not to leave Kevin Herter because they know how good he is and how uh, capable he is of hitting that outside shot of, of, of hitting an open shot of getting hot at any given time. And they force their teammate to handle De'Aaron Fox one-on-one or force somebody else to help. And a defense breaks down or Fox dominates a one V one matchup. Like we've seen him do not just all last season, but basically his entire career, Kevin Herter being out there provides natural spacing for the rest of the team, which is essential to the Kings offense. And he takes pressure off of the top two guys of Fox and Sabonis by forcing defenses to respect him next season. Like again, the Kings offense was one of the best we've ever seen averaging 120.7 points per game. They, because of Keegan Murray and Kevin Herter, I think the Kings have a very good chance of even improving upon that. Not, I mean, it doesn't always have to be points per game scored, but the efficiency of the Sacramento Kings offense can continue to improve based off of the efficiency and consistency of the shooting and scoring of both Herter and Murray and the spacing that they provide. The Kings were eighth in three-pointers made last season at 12.1. For perspective, the Milwaukee Bucks were first in the league in with 15.6 made three-pointers per game. The Milwaukee Bucks have put together a very, very simple offensive scheme, which is Giannis attempts, attacks the basket and draws in a crowd. You surround him with four shooters who are capable of, of, of knocking down shots. Now, the Kings will always have four shooters out there with De'Aaron. If DeMontis Sabonis could turn into a more consistent shooter, maybe that could help. But the way the Kings run is very different from how the Milwaukee Bucks run. But the concept is still relatively the same, right? So offensively, Sacramento is capable of raising that made threes in a game um, 
from from 12.1 to 15.6 and it wouldn't surprise me at all if that made threes number goes up to 13 or 14 per game this season with the amount of weapons that the Sacramento Kings have and the fact that the more respect that De'Aaron Fox gains the more respect that DeMontis Sabonis gains the more opportunity that the shooters are going to have from the perimeter the Kings were also third in the NBA in three-pointers attempted at 39.7 again I could see that number uh, going up as well with specifically with Kevin Herter I thought this number was interesting because you would think, okay, for Kevin Herter to be better for the Sacramento Kings, what if he scores more, right? Like I mentioned, he was the third leading scorer on the Kings last season, uh, averaging 15.2 points per game. So if, if Kevin Herter is going to play more of an important role, Matt, in the Kings becoming contenders, does that mean the Kings are going to need him to score more? Can he become a 16 or 17 points per game shooter or a scorer? I thought this was interesting. Kevin is more than capable of, of getting into the twenties and scoring. And typically when he does that, the Kings are in good shape. However, this number surprised me a little bit. Herder had 17 games last season where he scored 20 or more points in those 17 games. The Kings went only nine and eight. So what does that tell you? That doesn't necessarily mean that Kevin Herder scoring more is going to always be a great thing for the Sacramento Kings. Kevin Herter's impact in the Kings becoming contenders doesn't just fall with him scoring more baskets and, and, and scoring more points and, and hitting more shots. It goes deeper than that. When Kevin had 20 or Kevin had 21 games with four or more made three pointers. Now this is where it gets interesting. 21 games of four or more made three pointers in those 21 games, the Kings went 13 and eight. His shooting specifically, his floor spacing specifically is what unlocks that next level uh, to his game. He had 15 games of five or more assists. I thought Kevin Herter's passing was something that surprised me a little bit. I thought that and his mid-range game uh, were underrated last season. I still think they're underrated, something that he does pretty well. In those five or rather 15 games with five plus assists, the Kings went 10 and five. So to me, the next step of Kevin Herter's game is continuing to hit that outside shot. Of course, that's pretty easy, but becoming someone who continues to react well to how defenses handle Fox, how defenses handle Sabonis, and to speak to the relationship on the floor that he has with Sabonis and Fox, how much he benefits from playing with the two of them, of course, but also how much the two of them benefit from playing with him. He had 183 uh, rather, excuse me, he had 205 made three-pointers for the Kings last season. That's a pretty pretty good number. 205 made threes that were assisted. 183 of his 205 assisted made threes were from DeMontis Sabonis and De'Aaron Fox. 149 of them from Sabonis. That's a lot of the dri- dribble handoff game. 66 of them from De'Aaron Fox. If that doesn't speak to how well Herder reacts and re and, and feeds off of Fox and Sabonis and how the two of them can benefit playing in their offense, playing in their style from having a perimeter poacher like Herder on the floor uh, at all times. I don't know what does Herder benefits from the two of them more than anybody else on the floor, but that goes two ways, right? The two of those guys, uh, Fox and Sabonis also take advantage of, of Kevin Herter's ability on the perimeter because whether it's defense is collapsing, let's say it's Fox, a defense is collapsing collapsing on De'Aaron Fox. 
if it's Kevin Herter's man leaving him, he has a wide open option on the perimeter. If it's not Kevin Herter's man leaving him, but the defense is still collapsing, Fox knows he has a reliable option in Herter on the perimeter that he can always kick out to. And typically, Herter is going to make the right play, whether it's putting the ball up uh, or, or putting the ball up or uh, putting the ball on the floor. In terms of like the amount of wide open looks that the, uh, that that Kevin Herter had, he shot forty two percent on three-pointers that were wide open, which means no defender within six feet of him. The fact that he can get that much space is pretty incredible with how good of a shooter he is. For context, he shot 38% on shots that were considered open, which is a defender between three and six feet, um, or I think it's four and six feet. And then he shot 35% uh, on three-pointers where he was defended tight, which is, I think, one to three feet. So Kevin Herter clearly benefits, of course, uh, from how much he spaces the floor. Uh, I've got more numbers to share with you about the fatigue factor in Kevin Herter's game. And this is where I think his real next step is going to come from this, the, the consistency and ability to handle the role that he's been assigned and be able to play that over the course of the year without having his numbers drop off and then the fatigue factor really work itself in as much as it did last year. I think that was kind of his growing pain. That was kind of his figuring out the Kings offense. We're going to talk about the fatigue factor coming up here in just a second after I tell you about a great sponsor here of the Locked on Kings podcast. I've talked about them many times before. FanDuel, if you're looking to take your first being a swing at betting the MLB, do it at FanDuel and you can get 10 times your first bet amount in bonus bets up to $200. That's right. Just bet 20 bucks and you'll land $200 in bonus bets whether you win or you lose. That's 200 that you can spend on betting anything from the money line to the over or under or to who you think is going to hit the first home run of the game. It's all on an app that is safe, secure, and super easy to use. Plus, when you win, you can get paid instantly. There's no better place to bet on MLB than FanDuel, America's number one sports book. So sign up today. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on to get up to $200 in bonus bets. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on. FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. So how does fatigue play a factor in Kevin's game, Kevin Herter's game, and, and, and how does it play a factor in uh, his role for the Kings becoming a contending team going forward? Well, his shooting from three-point range specifically, which is the most valuable skill that he brings to the table, not his only skill, but the most valuable skill that he brings to the Kings, that was impacted heavily based off of the, the the amount of playing time that he had. And, and uh, as time went on over the course of last season, we saw those numbers dip. He shot 53% from three-point range in the month of October. Now, the season starts mid to late October, so that's not a, a, a massive sample size. Remember, he came out uh, shooting just lights out from three-point range. So a 53% uh, three-point shooting uh, rate, that's not going to be consistent. We know that, but still, it got off to an incredibly hot start. 53% in October, that dipped down to 41% in the month of November. Still over 40% from three-point range, that's good. You will take that month from a high-volume three-point shooter. In December and January, those percentages dropped down to 37%. Not as good, but not horrible, especially again for a high volume three-point shooter, but you would like to see that number up in the 39, 40, 41% range. Then we get to February, which is was a really big of a uh, struggle month for him. 29% from three-point range in the month of February. In March, after the All-Star break and the rest that he got during that All-Star break, he skyrocketed back up to 
from three-point range. Just had a red-hot month of March after getting that little break. In April, he plummeted back down to 25%. The fatigue catches up quicker in the second half of the season. One week off is not enough time, of course. And then in the playoffs, Kevin Herter shot 20% from three-point range. Those numbers are a clear reflection of the fatigue that he suffered over the course of the season to start out as hot as he did and to trickle off and trickle off and have a really bad month, finally get his break, have a great month after that break, fresh legs, and then to again, trickle off and trickle off and then plummet to that 25% in April and the amount that he struggled in, um, in April and in the playoffs, like that to me, that's where you unlock the next level of Kevin Herter, which helps the Kings get to that next level of becoming a contender. If you can get, a consistent 40 to 43, 43 is a lot. If you can get a consistent 38 to 41% three-point shooting every single month from Kevin Herter throughout the course of the entire year and, of course, in the playoffs too, the Kings are a monumentally better team. Even if he ends up averaging that 40, 41% from three-point range, he has the same exact three-point average for the season that he did last year. If it's more consistent over the course of the year versus having these extremely hot months followed by these extremely cold months, that consistency means the Sacramento Kings are a better basketball team. That consistency means he's even more reliable than he already is. But what played into this fatigue? Like why or where did this fatigue come from, from Kevin Herter? And is it something that we've, we've seen before in his career? Well, in his time with his last season with the Atlanta Hawks versus um, this past season with the Kings, his usage rate went up by three points. His pace and minutes, though, basically stayed the same. So he was playing an equal amount of minutes or relatively similar amount of minutes in Sacramento last season than he was the season before uh, in Atlanta. And those two teams were playing at the same speed. So it wasn't the minutes that he was playing and the pace that he was playing at that was leading to that fatigue. It was the fact that he was being used more, taking more shots, being uh, uh, the Kings were relying on him more going to him more, playing through him more. He was getting a higher volume of shots uh, than he got in his time in Atlanta. He had a bigger role in Sacramento, which we knew he was going to have coming into the uh, the season, and we didn't know how well he was going to be able to handle that. All things considered, I think he handled it pretty well, and you can see where there's areas of improvement uh, that he can make. Like it, it would be a bad thing or it would be concerning if the Kings were to come into this season and you'd look back on the year he had last year and go, man, I can't really see ways that he can improve off of that because the Kings as a whole need to continue to improve. If they get the same version of Kevin Herter next year that they got this, this past season, this past, uh, this past year, then they're not in bad shape, but I think they need a consistent, less tired that's easy to say from someone sitting in a chair talking about the game versus actually playing it. But if they can get that that consistent Kevin Herter impact from three-point range that's not as uh, affected by fatigue and he's able to kind of manage um, the ebbs and flows as a shooter over the course of the entire regular season and going into the playoffs, I think that's a big step for him. Uh, his offensive rating was up five points, 116 to 121, which is great. He was more efficient as an offensive player, more efficient as a scorer uh, for the Sacramento Kings from his time with the Atlanta Hawks. And what's not in encouraging is that his defensive rating went up 112 to 116. Now, you have to understand with defensive rating, the higher the defensive rating the worse that it is. You want low defensive rating and offensive rating. You want a high offensive rating. So think more points is good on offense. 
uh, less points is good on defense. So his defensive rating did go up. The Kings could always ask for more from him and the rest of this team defensively. But what was good is that he had the best net rating of his career, which was 4.5. He was a positive 4.5 net rating, the best of his career, which was up from a 3.8 net, uh, net rating this past season or rather the season before with the Atlanta Hawks. Kevin Herter is more than capable uh, of, of handling this role as more of a volume scorer for the Sacramento Kings. Again, the consistency of Herter and the ability to manage the fatigue of the season and not allow that to have drastic impact on his production and cause inconsistency the way that it, that it affected him last season. I think that is absolutely the key or step one to the positive impact that Kevin Herter is more than capable of making for the Sacramento Kings and turning them into contenders. So what are your thoughts? I mean, I threw a lot of numbers at you there. What do you take away from those numbers? What are your thoughts on Kevin Herter and his role uh, as a important and valued piece on a potential championship team? We might not have all the answers to that. He might be one of those players that once the Kings become that that championship contender, truly that they need to upgrade to get that little extra push, right, to actually win a title. That could be, he could be the guy that's replaced in that scenario, or it could be Harrison Barnes. It could be somebody else. We don't know. But based off of the numbers and based off what I know of, of Kevin Herter, the player, and specifically what I know of Kevin Herter's fit, and how I can see numerically the Kings stars benefit from playing with him. I believe a more consistent Kevin Herter is what this Sacramento Kings team needs, or one of the, one of the many things, but a crucial piece of this team becoming a real championship contender. If you're wondering what it's like podcasting with a toddler, this is what you get recording a segment in your car. Cause your voice is going to get too loud and you're going to get a little too fired up and you don't want to wake the young man up, and then he ruins your entire night. So here I am sitting in my car, and it's hot, but I'm getting through this. Why am I recording in my car? Because I'm doing something a little bit differently here. I'm talking about something that has nothing to do with Sacramento Kings basketball. I'm talking about A's baseball here. Now, you're probably wondering why. If you don't know, I'm a diehard A's fan. I've been a diehard A's fan basically my entire life, even though there are times frequently recently that I wish that I wasn't and wish that I could just put the team aside and stop caring about them. But alas, I cannot do that because of how ingrained the A's are into, into my life and into my fandom. Now I know there are a lot of fans in Sacramento that are A's fans. I also am, am, am aware that the majority of baseball fans in the Sacramento area are probably San Francisco Giants fans. So if you're that, I'm telling you, do not turn off this segment and don't just tune out just because it's about the A's and it's not about your team. And even those of you who are not baseball fans, period, I encourage you to continue to listen because what's happening in Oakland, specifically with Oakland A's ownership, is an issue for all of professional sports, not just for the Oakland A's and not just for Major League Baseball. I'm aware that sports are a business. I'm not naive. 
right? There's so much cash flow that goes through professional sports. The amount of money that players make, that comes from somewhere, right? That comes from lucrative TV deals. That comes from advertising sponsors. That comes from uh, ticket sales. That comes from uh, selling merchandise. There's so much money that goes in and out of professional sports. And being a sports owner, of course, you are a businessman. You want to try and take advantage of that cash flow and make as much money as you possibly can. I'm not naive to that. I understand that. I'm aware that sports is a business and I firmly believe that sports can operate as a business without negatively impacting the sport. But that's what's happening in Oakland. The business side of what John Fisher and his cronies are doing in Oakland with the A's is undermining the team, the product, the game of baseball, and all of professional sports. If owners are allowed and quite frankly encouraged by their own commissioners to Behave the way that John Fisher behaves, which is just put bare minimum money into that product on the field. Take as much revenue share as he possibly can so he's in, in the green as much as possible. To have this these billions of dollars of assets that he inherited from his father but not willing to use any of that to buy or to pay for a new stadium and instead is acting or asking for ridiculous public funding for not just a ballpark in Oakland, but now for a ballpark in Las Vegas. Like to allow an owner to do this, it's such an unbelievable and blatant abuse of power. And yet the MLB does nothing. And it's something that fans need to be aware of. It's something that fans need to speak out against, regardless of the team that you root for, because it is killing baseball. It is killing the sport. It is embarrassing for the sport, for the Sacra or rather the Oakland A's to have such a pathetic payroll and such a pathetic product on the field, yet have an owner that benefits from that and cashes out from that could potentially benefit even more by getting a stadium built for him in Las Vegas, where that will increase the value of the team, rip the team out of the city of Oakland, rip the team away from diehard Oakland A's fans who, yes, are still there. Trust me, they are still there, even though the Oakland A's don't deserve for them to be there because they don't give A's fans and haven't give a, a, given A's fans for over a decade anything to really care about and be passionate about. Sure, they've had good teams. They've developed good teams through their own farm system. But what happens every single time that player's contract comes up and their payday is there? They're traded away before the Oakland A's have to pay them the money that they deserve. This has been happening for almost my entire lifetime as an Oakland A's fan. John Fisher is blatantly taking advantage of the system. He's blatantly hurting the game of baseball, hurting the MLB, hurting professional sports by putting everything business side over the sport itself, the team themselves, the fans themselves. And yet he also has the audacity to blame the fans and to blame the city of Oakland to get the mouthpiece of baseball Rob Manfred to not only be willing to waive relocation fees which is ridiculous but on top of that to suggest that the Oakland the city of Oakland has never come to the table with a legit plan and has never tried to truly negotiate with the Oakland A's to try and paint this picture that everything that's wrong with the A's the reason why the A's are one of the worst teams in the last decade excuse me in the last century 
It's because of the fans. It's because of the lack of support. Hey, look at the the fact that the look at the, the the attendance tonight. Thursday night baseball, A's versus Mariners. Oh, the Oakland A's only had two thousand five hundred fans in attendance. See, this fan base doesn't support baseball. This fan base doesn't support the A's. We need to leave and go to Las Vegas, where they're sure to support us. There, it's Oakland's fault. It's BS. It's nonsense. And every fan of not just baseball teams, every fan of professional sports needs to realize how a fan base and a city is being held hostage by a billionaire who does not want to play ball, who has not negotiated in good faith, who is a snake and straight up a bad person. It's not just that he is a bad owner. John Fisher is a bad human being. You want a latest example? I covered the reverse boycott that the Oakland A's did uh, uh, like a month ago. I was there for ABC 10 covering uh, the reverse boycott. It was an awesome atmosphere, awesome moment. A's fans, they didn't sell out the stadium, but certainly the biggest crowd that they've had in that stadium this season. They rally, they come together to send a message, not to Fisher, because Fisher knows what the message is, and Fisher doesn't care. Dave Cavill, A's president, he knows what the message is. He doesn't care. They just blatantly ignore it. They're sending a message not just to Major League Baseball, not just to baseball owners, sending message to the rest of the world, sending messages to all of baseball, and you're damn right sending, sending a message to Las Vegas of, we're here. We've supported this organization even though they didn't deserve our support, and they've treated us like crap. How do you think they're going to treat you? So the A's are now planning fans, which by the way, this reverse boycott was completely fan run. Of course, the organization is not going to run something like this. The reverse boycott was a complete success. So now they want to do a second one, a second reverse boycott, another opportunity to not just send a message, but also to come together and celebrate being fans because you don't know how much longer it's going to last. The A's are already a foot and a half out the door in Oakland. They got a lot to figure out in Las Vegas, and the fight certainly isn't over. I'm not giving up, and A's fans shouldn't give up. But it it feels like time is coming to an end, right, for a historic franchise that has had a lot of success in Oakland. So the second reverse boycott is happening. And what does John Fisher and the Oakland A's greedy organization do? Their average get-in-the-door price for A's games this season is $10. The ticket for that second reverse boycott, the getting the door price is $44. Matt, he's a businessman. He owns the team. It's in his right to do that. It's smart business to know that more people are going to show up and supply and demand, so you're going to raise ticket prices. Don't, Don't give him the satisfaction of calling him a smart businessman. Don't give him the satisfaction of pretending that this is a savvy move on his part. This is a blatant move to pinch every penny he can out of a fan base that is just trying to show that they do support this team and they don't want to lose the team that they love. Sports is more than just a game for a lot of people, and you as Sacramento Kings fans know and understand this. We all went through this relocation together, and I guarantee you, as much as you don't like the Maloofs, the Maloofs were a million times better and are a million times better than John Fisher and his cronies with the A's. A million times better. The Maloofs ran out of money. They had to sell because they they had no other option. Now, they didn't have to go about the way that they did it, and they certainly didn't do Sacramento any favors and deserve a lot of the hatred and vitriol they get from Oakland or Sacramento Kings fans. But John Fisher has the money. John Fisher has the assets to be able to succeed. 
to be able to build this new stadium in an Oakland market that is not a small market, even though he's always operated this team like they all like they are a small market. The money's there for Fisher. He's just blatantly choosing not to because he's a cheap. That's the reality of the situation when it comes to John Fisher. So the Maloof comparison to John Fisher is no, not even close. Not even close. Maloofs are way better. But on top of that, as Sacramento Kings fans, you should understand the connection that we have with our sports franchises and for a fr- uh, an organization, or rather a fan base like A's fans to be rallying and doing everything they can to show the MLB that they're here the same way the Sacramento Kings fan base drew the attention of the rest of the league, got David Stern on their side, and ultimately kept their team. That's what A's fans are trying to do. And they're being painted out and made out to be the bad guys. And now, while they're still trying to prove that they're not, while they're still trying to prove that they will continue to support baseball in Oakland like they always have, despite attendance numbers, you have an owner that is blatantly taking advantage of that and now trying to pinch every penny he can out of those fans. Shame on him. He's disgusting. It's bad for all the professional sports. Certainly it's bad for the MLB. The fact that they do nothing is disgusting as well. And as an A's fan, not only am I furious for what I've been subjected to over the last, basically my entire life, I'm furious that A's fans that are more diehard and dedicated than I am, I used to go to like 15, 20 games a year. I've I've been to one or two games over the last handful of seasons because I don't want to support Fisher. I don't want to support that ownership. But there are people that still want to go every single day because despite how much ownership has, has treated them like crap, they still love that team. They love green and gold. They love being green collar. They love baseball. And they don't know how much time they have left. Those people deserve... Our support, those people deserve your support. Those people deserve the support of fan bases around the league, regardless of what team you root for. And as Sacramento Kings fans, you know what this process is like. You know how hard this is. I encourage you and ask you, please rally behind A's fans as much as you possibly can because they deserve it. They deserve a good team. They deserve to have baseball stay in their city. And they certainly, certainly deserve better ownership than John Fisher. So there you go, Matt from his car ranting about the uh, the Oakland A's and ownership. A bit of a curveball, continuing with the, the baseball analogies. Uh, a bit of a curveball here at the end of this podcast, but I ho- hope you made it all the way through. I hope that you listened to that, and I hope you enjoyed uh, this show. If you want to react to anything that I said about Fisher, if you're an Oakland A's fan that feels the same way, if you're a baseball fan and just want to weigh in, hey, let's talk about it. Uh, of course, um, I encourage you again to just lend your support towards A's fans and 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 as a sports fan, if nothing else, make your voice heard that this this kind of ownership in professional sports should not and will not be tolerated. If nothing else, you doing that is uh, is more than enough for me. So I appreciate your support with that. Of course, I appreciate your support here on the Locked On Kings podcast. Uh, share your thoughts on Kevin Herter again. Uh, and uh, I have more episodes coming for you, uh, more interviews coming, guests coming, things like that. Uh, so make sure you uh, you stay tuned for that. Appreciate you waiting till either the next morning or staying up late to listen to this podcast. Sorry, I got it out um, so late tonight, but uh, I get them out when I can. So I'm happy to keep this offseason going. We're almost in August, which is the worst month of the year for the NBA, but that means we're just one step closer to the regular season being back. Of course, we will get you through that worst month and more right here on Locked on Kings. So stick with us. You have been listening to the Locked on Kings podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network.